This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sunday, May 15, 2022, and welcome to the 14th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can download the show as an audio podcast in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is Democratic strategist and founder of Third Degree Strategies, Max Burns. Max, hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. You're in uh, New York. Uh, you're East Coast. I'm West Coast. And so we'll, uh, you know, maybe meet in the middle politically. Who knows? Uh, you know, fi- five minute news, just to explain to people the, the daily podcast that I produce and have done, I think we're on episode 853 at the moment, is a, a five minute unbiased news program. Um, and people in America don't really understand how it's possible to do like nonpartisan news. And I I try and explain to people that the bias that people have intrinsically is actually in them and not in the journalist. Journalists, certainly where I come from, you know, journalism has to be uh, unbiased. It just has to be the truth. So if I say something bad about Donald Trump because he's done something bad, invariably people who have a political bias, they project their bias onto me. Do you find, certainly in the work that you do, that the media here is um, ever non-biased? Is there such a thing as truly unbiased media in America currently? No, I and I don't think that that has ever necessarily been the case here. There is always, since the founding of the nation, been a trend towards sensationalism in media. There's been a very clear trend toward political ownership of media It wasn't that long ago that it was fairly commonplace for political candidates. Thomas Jefferson, for example, a founding father who owned his own newspaper with the sole purpose of bashing the other party and advancing uh, his agenda. This is in many ways a really closely baked element of American culture. And it's been tough for nonpartisan or or objective outlets to get a foothold. Uh, Audiences do not seem to enjoy them. They don't tune in. Uh, So there's this challenge on one side of complaining that our news is hopelessly biased. But on the other hand, that is the only news that consumers seem to want to consume here. Uh, And when we've tried to put out media that is straight investigative reporting, that generally has struggled to gain any kind of audience. It's where news and entertainment merge, isn't it? That's really the problem. News is seen very much as entertainment and uh, cable news channels are seen as opinion channels. And where I'm from, they don't exist like that. You know, the, the BBC is a kind of bastion of, you know, upheld as a bastion of truth. Um, and so it's just, I think it's just a very interesting landscape and one that I am constantly interested in as a journalist who is trying to do 
impartial news, even though I personally obviously have a bias because I'm a progressive person. But I'm still able to report the truth, even though my personal opinions might, um, you know, I might, I might have some would consider my views to be radical in some cases, but my reporting is not radical. And this, this view of um, this new moniker of referring to Democrats as radical Democrats, I mean, how new is that? Is that, is that a new thing? Because from what I can see, there's nothing radical about Democrats. I wish they were radical. I wish they were as radical as the GOP. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I think that the challenge is that Republicans will call Democrats radical socialists no matter what they do. Uh, President Biden was just out earlier this week with a statement calling on states to spend their unspent COVID funds to hire more police and essentially fund the police. That's not going to stop Republicans from calling Democrats anti-police radicals. We're at a point where media has fractured to a place where you are able to find the media that reaffirms your worldview. And one of the problems we have that's driving all this polarization is that now people spend their entire political lives within ecosystems just hearing things they already agree with, whether, whether or not they're true. So you have Fox News viewers who are only viewing right-wing Fox content, MSNBC viewers who are only viewing that content. And as a result, there's very little consensus reality anymore that we can use as a foundation for governing for civil society. And that comes with real long-term risks for being able to actually manage this republic. Let's look at the three subjects that we're going to discuss today. Firstly, I want to look at the subpoenas of the Trump allies by the January 6th panel, which is to set up a high-stakes showdown for certain. This is the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack. They've made a bit of a political and legal gambit when uh, issuing these unprecedented subpoenas that have compelled five Republican members of Congress to um, uh, appear, you know, to, to real, reveal uh, this information about Trump's effort to overturn the election and to uh, appear in front of the committee. It's um, Kevin McCarthy, who's the GOP leader in Congress, uh, Jim Jordan, uh, everybody's favorite, Scott Perry, Andy Biggs and Mo Brooks. Um, so we'll look at that story in just a few moments. I also want to talk about Biden himself, who is uh, under pressure to tame the high inflation. Uh, he told Americans on Tuesday that he understands their plight and that he, uh, that the U.S. Federal Reserve and he are working to solve what he called his administration's top domestic priority. And staying with Joe Biden, we're going to look at the linguistics of the president. Uh, some of the language that he's been using has been very interesting in the in the last week. Uh, I didn't kind of realize that his faith is obviously very important to him, and therefore his views on abortion may also be not necessarily where the Democratic Party is uh, across the board. So we'll be asking if he's the right man to lead during this um, potential overturning of Roe v. Wade, but also his language uh, regarding the ultra-MAGA label on the GOP. Um, referring, this is one of his own phrases, and we'll find out from you if you think that that use of language is uh, helpful. I certainly the uh, the right wing media have had a bit of a field day with it. But uh, let's start with uh, this um, uh, the subpoenaing of these uh, characters: uh, McCarthy, Jordan, Perry, Biggs, and Brooks to the January 6th panel, which is we must remind people it's a bipartisan panel. Adam Kinsinger. And um, Liz Cheney, they're the Republicans on the on the panel. Despite them being there, they're thought of as rhinos by the right, right? It's, you know, Republican in name only. So 
they don't really consider this panel to be a kind of bipartisan panel, do they? They've they've decided that these Republicans are not really Republicans. A little bit like how Joe Joe Manchin's not really a, de- a Democrat. So, I mean, what's going to happen? Is it how likely is it that um, that McCarthy is going to respond to this subpoena and actually go through with this, or is there going to be a massive fight in the uh, in on Capitol Hill? Well, this is surely set up to be one of the biggest political fights we've seen. Uh, it's historic to have a committee that's investigating an attack on the government, subpoenaing sitting members of Congress, including the Republican leader himself. Uh, these are individuals who are all very close Trump allies. They're individuals the committee knows was in contact with Trump and his team on January 6th. They have not been especially forthcoming about what they said or what they did. And this is an effort to get at that truth. And what we're going to see, uh, Republicans have already earlier this week responded to these uh, subpoenas, calling the committee illegitimate, saying they have no intention of participating in this. And that's really been where we're at so far. Almost every Republican who has been subpoenaed has essentially said, take me to court. And they know that they can do that because that process is likely going to take upwards of a year. And by that time, Republicans will in all likelihood be back in control in the House and have shut down this committee. So they are acting as if they have nothing to fear because at the current rate of action, they don't have anything to fear. That's really something this committee has struggled with, is keeping that momentum and really pushing to to get accountability from individuals who were involved. But this this is a massive moment for democracy, not just for politics, and for what that means, that sitting members of Congress may have been involved in some structural way in supporting or instigating this attack on the Capitol. That is a, a dark thing to say about our country. What goes through the mind of someone like Kevin McCarthy, who is who is on tape just a day or so after, or indeed the day of the insurrection, you know, coming out and saying, you know, critiquing and criticizing and, and blaming Trump and, you know, saying all the things that he should have said as the leader of, of, of the conservatives. Yeah, and, and yet now changing been... the story. I mean, this is the thing. It's like, it's on tape. You said good things. Well, not good things. You said the right things. And now you're saying the opposite. It's, it's like choosing to your allegiance with the, with the leader, the supreme leader, in this case, Donald Trump, over the entire democratic fabric of your nation going forward. I mean, it's hardly a choice to make. So what goes through the mind of these people that they would make such a decision? Well, this is the result of a Republican Party that has willingly sacrificed any values it might have had, any belief in anything that it may have once believed, conservatism, small government, in favor of power, of believing that anything is a means to the end of winning elections. And that if Republicans win the House and Senate back, if they win the presidency in 2024, this will all have been worth it. Because the first thing that will happen will be pardons for individuals who were involved and then a complete rewriting of history. And we see that already. We see these individuals who were privately messaging the White House in a panic, saying this is terrorism, this is wrong, this is something only the president can stop and call these people back, and then going on television moments after sending those messages and saying, these are just tourists, this is nonviolent, there's nothing to worry about, this has nothing to do with the president. There are people who knew they were lying at the time, and they've made the calculation that has unfortunately been right so far 
that as long as they keep this smoke in the air, as long as the narrative keeps changing, the American people won't know what to think. And absent leadership from the committee and public hearings to really set the record straight and create a true historical record of what happened, this is an event Republicans are going to write and rewrite as many times as it takes to excuse their own responsibility. But it's it's tantamount to to evil, isn't it? I mean, you're effectively saying that these people are evil and they don't think of themselves as evil, do they? They, they think of them and also the people that are supporting them. They must know that January 6th happened. You know, there's enough footage, there's enough circulation of imagery. We've had like 600 people have, have been sentenced, uh, you know, have been through the court system over this. So at what point do the followers, the supporters, whether it be the staunch MAGA crowd or whether it be just, you know, the the fiscal conservatives, at what point do they stop suspending their disbelief? This, this is what I can't kind of get my head around. It's like if the whole thing is a ruse to get to, you know, to get to 2024, then, you know, how much do you drag the nation through this garbage to get to that point? Well, I think the, the concerning thing that this shows, uh, not just from 2016, but going forward, is that there are a lot of Americans who don't have that hot a view of democracy, who view democracy as something negotiable. And if it gets in the way of achieving their policy goals, they have no use for it. We've seen that in the response to abortion from the right so far. We've seen that on January 6th. We've seen that on immigration. Uh, that these are individuals who are perfectly happy to rewrite the fundamental structure of democracy to serve their own purposes. And for the most part, their voters view that as bold, courageous action against Democrats who are illegitimate, who are paid for by shadowy communist powers who want to destroy America. It really is a cult mentality. And the alarming thing here is Democrats have not put together a clear message about this. I don't believe most Americans are aware of the work the January 6th committee is doing. I don't believe that they are fully aware of how close this country came to a major constitutional crisis on January 6th. And I don't think they're aware of how closely the senior individuals, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, were in communication with individuals in the White House to say, what do we do next? You know, we've taken the Capitol. Where do we go from here? That's information that needs to get out. We cannot trust Americans to just know that themselves. And the committee has not told that story in a clear way so far. I'm hoping these hearings are a chance to do that. Well, this is interesting because this is your area of expertise, the, the messaging on behalf of Democrats. And this is my frustration, you know, as, a, as an innocent bystander, is that I'm aware that the Democrats are doing so much good work. I'm aware that they're going out of their way to kind of, you know, get this investigation done before the midterms. I'm very conscious of, of the effort. And Benny Thompson, I think, is a very good chair and he seems to, you know, be the right man for the job. But what is it about the Democrats' inability to communicate the work that they do behind the scenes, not just with the January 6th um, insurrection committee. And I, I worry that people don't really understand the word insurrection, and that probably was not a very helpful word to use in the first place. But, you know, wh what more could they do? And why are they so silent about the work that they do do? So 
one of the big issues here, especially with January 6th, is this misguided view among Democrats specifically on the committee who do not want this to look like a partisan political witch hunt investigation. They don't want to be accused of being biased, of just attacking Republicans. That's a big reason you haven't seen a lot of messaging on the wrongdoing Trump has now been shown to do. Uh, this fear is completely misplaced. We're still in the belief uh, in Washington that there are Republicans who are willing to work in a bipartisan way with Democrats. I think if the abortion decision and the response the lockstep GOP response around ending abortion and restricting contraception didn't finish that narrative for Democrats, nothing will. I, we have Republicans who are quite directly saying, not only is the January 6th committee illegitimate, Democrats are illegitimate. Every one of them is illegitimate, regardless of if their election was stolen or not, because they hate America. That's not a party that's willing to work with us. It's not a party that's pulling its punches or measuring its language about, about Democrats because they know it works. And this view that maybe if we play nice, there's still some opportunity to work together down the line sort of assumes that there will be a country that is not so divided in the future that we can actually get work done. And that does not seem to be the case right now. I'm always surprised. I mean, I was surprised when Nancy Pelosi said that she was going to, you know, seek re-election uh, at her at her age. And uh, I respect her opinion. I watched a very interesting documentary on PBS about her life history the other other week and learned a whole bunch of things I, I didn't know. You know, these people are clearly very good at their jobs in one way, but the world has changed in the last fifty years, hasn't it? You know, we now live in a world of social media. We live in a world of instant gratification. We live in a world where regular people have a voice. You know, when I was a kid, the only way you could possibly have the right of reply as a member of the public, you know, just a regular citizen, was writing a letter to the Times newspaper and in the hope that it might get published. <laughs> and if it did, you were like a local superstar. But, you know, fundamentally, now everybody has a voice um, whether it be bots on Twitter, just heard that Elon Musk is now considering his position as the buyer because turns out he's, you know, uh, obviously that's a bit of a red herring. I think he knew all along that it was it was full of bots. But my my point is that we are living in a in a town square now where everybody, no no matter how illegitimate their opinion or how foolish or misinformed their opinion, that they still get equal an equal platform. So why are the why are the Democrats not employing the best social media people? You know, why aren't they employing Midas Touch to make their videos? Why aren't they getting like the best editors, the best creatives and writers and treating it like a production in the same way that the GOP do? And there was briefly a time when that was true. I think in 2008, that long, long ago uh, with the, the Obama campaign actually did hire from the private sector. They hired media people. They hired entertainment producers to make things that were slick and engaging. And that really just stopped. That investment in infrastructure stopped. And you made a great point. I mean, half of the Senate is so old that if they worked for an airline, they would be mandated to retire. But <laughs> yeah. they are still allowed to govern technology policy, messaging, uh, core elements of the country. And quite frankly, many Democratic leaders I've met with in their 60s, 70s, 80s, do not understand the nature of social media communication, of digital advocacy. 
they still think the Obama model works when in fact we've moved several generations past that in terms of what the Republicans are doing into very effective social and organic messaging. And you see that in the Republican Party because by and large, Republican media people are younger than Democratic media people, as as is true for the party as a whole. There are Republicans who are engaged in incredible social media, Elise Stefanik, uh, who is 37, a year younger than the nation as a whole. And quite frankly, you know, Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi writing emails and press releases cannot hope to compete with that kind of direct engagement. And we see that every day, that the drivers of the media cycle now are happening on social media. There's stories that have their origin on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok. Uh, it's rare you see a Nancy Pelosi press release making the Washington Post. And it's, it's a strategy that we could change much easier if some of these older Democrats would sort of make way for a younger generation of people who have come up naturally in this ecosystem, instead of making them feel unwanted, unwelcome, and quite frankly, like their talents would not be appreciated. As a strategist yourself, if you present this plan to uh, lawmakers, what kind of response do you get? I mean, or, or do we just fundamentally have to wait for Nancy Pelosi to retire? I mean, is there... Is there enough interest in it? Because obviously they understand. And, you know, a, a Joe Biden daily TikTok would be essential, right? So what what kind of response do you come up against when you try and make these contemporary suggestions in an antiquated world? And this is something I've been involved with closely. And my sense has always been uh, reinforced by conversations with the DNC, with Democratic leaders, that the interest is there, but the resourcing is not. This is still a party that treats communications as an intern's job and assigns it to often the junior staffer in the office. And anyone who runs a communications firm can tell you that that is not the way to drive headlines. You need to treat this as the frontline advocacy that it is. And one of the big differences is we've seen Republicans invest heavily after their loss in 2012, invest heavily in social and digital communication and not only in-house, but reaching out to aligned right-wing groups run by young people like Charlie Kirk's organization uh, to help amplify their messaging and go right to the source of what these young people know their colleagues are consuming. Democrats have not especially done that. They still hold communications very close. It's still a decisions made by committees in Washington that often doesn't include feedback from people outside of the Beltway bubble. And it's really starting to show its age as a strategy. And isn't this why Donald Trump was the kind of mighty success that he was and still is? Because despite the fact that he has barely any vocabulary, he has barely any intellect, he doesn't even really know how to use a smartphone, as we've since discovered, you know, he, he was able to galvanize this communication tool in such a way that made his rise to stardom meteoric. And, and you know, Elon Musk said taking Twitter away from Trump didn't, um, you know, kind of didn't silence him. I actually think it really did silence him, you know, and, and posting a similar message on his website and then people reposting it on Twitter didn't have the same effect of this guy waking up in the morning being furious from what he'd seen on television and then effectively live tweeting his kind of inner monologue. It was like therapy for him. 
That's what the Democrats are up against. They are up against people who are impulsive. He didn't have to run it by anybody first, right? He effectively just said what he wanted, and it caused uh, it, it snowballed. It became huge, and he became a star. And people would rather vote for a guy like that, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is arguably the most effective social media user ever, and Elon Musk adopts the same successful strategy, which is that voters don't necessarily care to hear your extended discourse on public policy. They want something that keys into an emotion they're feeling and tells them it's okay to feel it. So when Elon Musk shouts about people who are mean to him, even if it's not technically true or it's not news, it's something that connects with people who also had people shout at them. And they'll share it and retweet it and start to feel a connection. And Donald Trump was excellent at this. He understood better than almost any politician that social media is at its heart social. Uh, that people who were responding to him had a good chance of being retweeted, had a good chance of, of being validated by a like or a comment from the president himself. And that was a huge statement of loyalty. There's a reason why once Donald Trump was banned from Twitter, his share of media mentions, his online engagement dropped 90% in a week. I mean, this is a, a crisis that we enabled largely because the media could profit from Trump's extreme tweets and the clicks they brought. And once we did what we always knew would solve the problem, it unsurprisingly solved the problem. I tweeted last week, I think something along the lines of, I, I bet CNN can't wait for Musk to buy Twitter so that Trump gets reinstated so that their advertising revenues will increase again. Because fundamentally, that's what happened, right? You know, nobody was watching CNN. It was on in gyms and it was on in hotels, maybe. But like, it wasn't, people weren't drawn to it. And yet when the freak show started, it became uh, a very addictive watch. They didn't care for the fact that they were uh, supporting and encouraging the rise of fascism in the West. Because you know, they were white, rich people getting richer. So so this is part of the problem, isn't it? Leading into 2024, Trump, if he's not prosecuted, I have no doubt will be the candidate because there isn't really anybody else in the same way as there isn't really anybody to replace Biden at this stage, you know. So is this a serious problem? You know, is social media and this his ability to connect, even though the stuff that he says, you know, he often was retweeting extremist material, is this a kind of guarantee that he's likely, if he runs, to win in 2024? And, and, and we really now, everybody else really only has a, a couple of years to kind of raise their game. Yeah, I've long held that if Donald Trump is alive in 2024, he will be the nominee. There is simply nobody in the party who can stand up to him. His closest opponent is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's, I think, by some measures, 30 points behind Trump in favorability for this that no one really believes there is a legitimate challenger to Donald Trump. A lot of the private communication on the right has been, what does the post-Trump look like if he decides not to run? And he said that he may not, that he would cite his health as a reason if he chose not to. But he's also said that he didn't want to be back on Twitter, and he seems pretty intent now on getting back there and restarting this campaign, because it was a huge money generator for Trump as well. The same is for the media. And I think it goes back to the point you made earlier, that 
this this all comes from a confluence of the fact that the media is largely insulated in blue states on the coast who did not feel the impact of Trump, that abortion will be legal in those states no matter what. Immigration is largely unrestricted in those states. So they don't understand how seriously Trump affected the rest of the country. And they're for-profit enterprises. Their job is to make money for shareholders. If Donald Trump is back on Twitter and people are clicking articles about Donald Trump, he will lead the news every day until 2024, the same as he did in 2015 and 2016. Let's just go back to the initial conversation about Kevin McCarthy and the and the, and the henchman being subpoenaed by the committee. Uh, is there the suggestion that you're you're saying that they'll just write this out, they'll they'll ignore the subpoena, they'll it'll go to the courts, and you know time will run out effectively. But just suppose there you know there is a case for subpoenaing the former president, right? And and. Uh, let's just say hypothetically that he was to get prosecuted, you know, that it was given to the Justice Department and Merrick Garland finally kind of rose to the occasion. Uh, There's probably half the country who, as you say, get their media from a very narrow place, political place, will be like, this is fascism because we have not heard of any of these charges before. And you're taking our man, Donald Trump, the tweeter in chief, and you're trying to throw him in prison, and the guy didn't do anything. I mean, that's effectively what it is, because the, the landscape, if the political and news landscape is not even, if people are in their echo chambers, then effectively, if, I mean, there's all these memes of Trump in a orange jumpsuit or in handcuffs that kind of, you know, people desperate for him to answer to his crimes. But it got me thinking, you know, you've got 70 million people that voted for him who don't think he committed a crime. You know, they think Biden should be in prison. They think Hunter Biden should be in prison, and so should Hunter Biden's laptop. They think Fauci should be in prison for for injecting everybody with a virus. I mean, there is a completely different narrative. And, and, And yet it seems to me that the Democrats with this insurrection committee feel like this is the kind of last bastion of hope and that Merrick Garland is the man to close the deal. Yeah, it does feel as if we're trying to stitch together two increasingly different Americas that have very little fundamentally in common. They don't read the Constitution in the same way. They don't believe in the the idea of freedom or democracy or representation in the same way. And there's very little you can do to convince them. These are, these are people on the right, especially, who view Democrats not only as opponents, but as enemies of the state, as Donald Trump called them in the press, as, as people who it is their patriotic duty to remove from power by any means. Because as any number of QAnon and MAGA officials have said, you know, when there is an attack on democracy, anything is justified in protecting the country. That enables a lot of really dark actions. And I do believe that if Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice charge Donald Trump or if he's charged in New York, that that will be used as an excuse for violence on the right. But that is not a reason not to do it. Accountability and democracy must stand even if there is a risk of violence, because without that, there is no accountability structure and there is nothing holding this experiment together. It's the next civil war waiting to play out, isn't it? I mean, you've got people like Kyle Rittenhouse just waiting with their semi-automatic weapon to kind of have a have an excuse to kind of run out to the front line. 
And I even remember here in Los Angeles, you know, during the the, the riots, the BLM um, uh, protests that b- became violent and the boarding up of the streets here on Hollywood and Vine, I remember seeing the the National Guard in their in their military fatigues. And I was like, you know, this is Trump's America. This is where I'm living now as an immigrant. I'm living in a place where it seems normal to have the military on the streets. I mean, and not forgetting, you know, the disappearing of people in the streets of Portland, you know, these kind of tactics that you would only expect to happen in in Russia and places like that were happening right here in America. This is not a warning for what could happen. This already happened. This is what could come back if Trump came back, right? We, we would be in this very militarized environment. Uh, you know, that, that huge fence will go up around the White House again, as it, as it was during this period. I mean, do we need to be very careful what we wish for? Yes, I, we are in an incredibly dangerous point. We are sort of off the map of where the founders anticipated we would have constitutional crises. Uh, this has officially moved further along the scale of concern than the founders thought it would ever get. So we've sort of been left to develop our own policy solutions to these problems. You had a president in Donald Trump who wanted to shoot peaceful protesters in the legs, specifically to scare them. And specifically, he said to send a message that you don't exercise your protest rights on my watch. And this is a Republican Party that believes that and believes that the January 6th rioters were engaged in legitimate political protest, but that individuals protesting abortion outside Supreme Court justices' homes should be jailed. Uh, There are people, uh, Matt Gates for one, calling for these individuals to be jailed for life, for peaceful protest. Uh, And it is very clear that in the Republican view, laws and police are not things that are meant to promote common welfare and, and prosperity and peace, but to be used to control your opponent and to be used to restrict what your opponents can do. It's a position very similar to that of Russia. And I don't think it's surprising, given Republicans' praise of Russia, that we've gotten here very quickly. I watched Tucker Carlson on Fox the other night showing the vigil, the silent candlelit vigil outside Justice Alito's home. And he played the tape and he turned to his audience and he said, this is disgusting. This mob, I cannot even look at it. I can't even show you more. It it is disgusting. He was referring to it as if it was a violent beating down the front door. They weren't on his property. They were out on a public street. Because there's a law against, you know, it's written into the Constitution, right, that you can't protest at the the homes of, uh, of Supreme Court justices. It's very interesting to me. So the narrative, as we know, is always very different on, on various sides. And that is clearly not going to change. I want to talk a little bit more uh, about Biden specifically now, uh, because inflation, as you know, is the word, uh, the buzzword at the moment. But not just in America. Inflation is all over the world, you know, caused by the pandemic and now the uh, war in Ukraine, uh, which has had a knock on effect in multiple ways. Well, on uh, Tuesday this week, he uh, told Americans that he understands their plight that he and the U.S. Federal Reserve are working to solve what he called his administration's top domestic priority. He said they're frustrated of of Americans paying more for goods and services across the board. I don't blame them. 
so we're seeing, you know, the prices at the pump go up. We're seeing um, record profits for these refineries, you know, the, 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 these uh, oil companies, energy companies making more money than they've ever made, you know, taking advantage of the fact there's a war in Ukraine and just ramping up the profit. And, and uh, apparently Biden has said that he's, you know, asking them to <laughs> reduce their profit at this moment in time. How do you critique Biden's handling and the Democrats' handling of the inflation story? Because the right-wing media are having a huge field day with this. You know, they're saying that he's not taking responsibility. He's trying to blame everybody else. That's their rhetoric. Yeah, and that's something that should be very familiar to Republicans who have essentially blamed the rest of the world for every challenge Donald Trump faced in his presidency. The difference is Joe Biden stood up. He took responsibility, something I think would have been more effective 20 years ago in a different political climate. Uh, these are voters now who are not going to give Joe Biden any credit for taking responsibility. They just want solutions. And that's a thorny prospect. This is something that, as you mentioned, is driven in large part by profiteering on everything from oil prices to baby formula to semiconductors. And well, Democrats have been really good explaining, hey, listen, inflation is real. We're not ignoring that. We know it's pinching your wallet. They've been less clear in vocalizing the second half of that story of here are the bums who are responsible and we're going to get this in place by making sure they pay their fair share in taxes and then returning that wealth that they've grifted back to taxpayers through a direct payment. I think that is the path to go forward. And, and a path that I think Republicans would do immediately if they were in this position. You would have a Donald Trump signed check in your inbox and Republicans would be praising the president for getting that out immediately. Whether or not it worked to fix inflation, uh, we know that Americans feel like those checks work. So we need to get one of those out, ideally by holding accountable the multi-billionaire companies we said we would hold accountable in 2020. Trump did that very early on in his presidency, didn't he? When the coronavirus first hit, or maybe it was even before before the pandemic, I seem to remember he, didn't he? Oh, that's right. It was as a result of the tax cut. He basically sent $1,000 to everybody, right? And it was, it was like a bribe. It was a bribe. It was saying, look, if you, you voted for me and I'm putting money back in the pockets of hardworking Americans sends everybody this $1000 check. There was this whole there was this whole thing about making sure that his signature was on it. Do you remember? He wanted a, yep. a marketing, right? Wanted to make it look like it was coming out of his pocket. People didn't really uh, realize that it was their own money they'd already paid in taxes that they were getting as a rebate. I mean, this is the genius of Trump. This is the genius of the Republicans. You know, making it look like they're doing something even when they're not doing anything. So is it not time for Democrats to take a leaf out of that book instead of like playing by these aged rules? You know, I was thinking about when you were talking about the founders earlier and the founders not predicting like the kind of world we'd be living in now. I mean, my mum is only one generation before and, and, and she's like, you know, really having to work extra hard to live in this new world of technology. Yeah. And we're talking about founders forefathers we're talking about people who thought that a well-stocked militia was like a a gun that fired one shot and now a well-stocked militia consists of semi-automatic weapons and you know the these the, the, the kind of weapons that would never be used to to for self-defense they'd be used on in a theater of war so 
how would you advise Democrats right now? I mean, what, what's the, what should be their strategy? Well, right now, political courage is on the menu across the board. Uh, one thing Republicans do really well, uh, for their base especially, is making sure that you know who did an action. Like Donald Trump's check, for example, came with a letter. You know that came from Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress. Uh, when Roe versus Wade uh, leaked, Republicans in states cheered and said, this is what the Republican Party is doing for you. We've delivered on our promise. It took us years, but we did it. And we will always fight for what we say we're going to fight for. You don't see that from Democrats who are almost too nervous to overpromise, uh, unaware of the fact that, that most Americans are impressed with anything. This is a Congress that has passed functionally nothing, and even less that bears Joe Biden and Democrats' stamp on it. So voters can be excused for thinking Democrats haven't been effective if Democrats aren't going to market that story directly into their homes. I mean, we've rarely seen Joe Biden out in states like he's wanted to do, talking to voters one-on-one -on -one about this. That's one area where we've seen nothing from Democrats that needs to happen very quickly, is Democrats actually back in communities, holding rallies, Joe Biden on the stump where he's strongest talking to voters, because these sort of pre-recorded, scripted White House events are just not cutting through the noise. Joe Biden was brilliant at the White House uh, correspondence dinner, wasn't he? You know, the speech that he gave, he was yeah, on point. Yeah, it was point. hilarious. He was hilarious. He didn't seem like a 100-year-old man anymore. He seemed like a 40-year-old man. He, he was energized. He was, he was full of humor, good humor. There is this thing. We had the same thing in England when Gordon Brown took over from Tony Blair as prime minister. You know, Gordon Brown never gave his personal public, you know, his private life remained very private. He was very boring on camera and, and nobody really like connected with him. You probably don't even remember him, right? <laughs> I mean, that's how boring the guy was. And it wasn't until the day that he left office that you actually saw photographs of him with his children at 10 Downing Street and saw him cuddling them. And, and suddenly... My country, Britain, felt like, have we underestimated this guy who's now leaving office? Because actually, he's a family man, and he's a good guy, and he's highly intelligent, intellectual. Is it the same with Biden? That You know, behind the scenes, Biden's a mover and a shaker, and he, he does have the skills and the humor. But because he has a stutter, and because he is not a natural public speaker that we're not really getting to see the real guy, you know, unlike Obama, who was, you know, a community organizer. And so that kind of rolled into him being a natural candidate for president. And I maintain that Obama was an anomaly. I mean, we'll never see a candidate with those skills and that swagger ever again. But I, I recognize that maybe Biden, as we saw at the, at the press dinner, maybe, I mean, are they keeping him from us because of the stutter, because the right has such a such fun with him and clip all of his mistakes together. I mean, is there more to the man than we realize? There absolutely is. I mean, there's a reason Joe Biden has survived in politics through all of these cultural and generational shifts. And that Biden at the correspondence dinner is the Biden that a lot of voters saw in 2020, uh, who seemed like such a down-to-earth, humorous, but grounded and realistic option compared to this lunatic who was talking about China shooting hurricanes at the United States and threatening to shoot protesters. But one of the big issues with Democrats is they tend to corral their candidates really closely. We saw that with John Kerry in 2004. 
You saw that with Obama in his first term after he became president. Uh, this idea that if only every voter in America could sit down with Joe Biden, they'd love him. Well, yeah, that's true for a lot of candidates, but you don't have that option. You have to message your candidate. And part of that is letting them be themselves. Joe Biden misspeaks. It's something we all know. It's something we've come to accept. I think Democrats worry a lot more than they should about the fallout from that. I think if voters handled four years of Donald Trump and most people understood uh, his misspeaking and his weird sentences and, and still stood with him, you know, you shouldn't worry so much about stuttering or saying the wrong name. You should be natural. And that unnatural nature is what people are seeing in Biden. They see a guy who clearly is not able to say what he wants to say and who's taking messaging advice from people who clearly don't know voters as well as Joe Biden does. We haven't heard a huge amount about the abortion issue from Joe Biden. It's not something that he is comfortable talking about. He, he has Catholic faith. He is a man of, of God. And I assume, I don't know, but I assume that privately he's not a huge fan, right? I just assume. But he understands that he's representing a progressive party and that he knows he's seen the polls. 70% of the country is in favor of a woman's right to choose. He made the mistake. He was, you know, caught off guard the other day just talking about, you know, the faux pas. And he said the phrase abort a child. And uh, which is not the, an appropriate phrase because it's untrue. Children are not aborted. Fetuses are aborted, as we know. And, and you know, there's a, all sorts of questions about the semantics of this. But unfortunately, the right wing media were very, you know, energized by this. I mean, is this the reason why he doesn't talk out and speak out about this? And, you know, he, he, the, he goes back to his, you know, age old phrases about, you know, choice and women having choice and, and supporting women's rights. And, and that is understandable. But he, is it true to say that he can't talk specifically about abortion or even say the word abortion? Yeah, I think Joe Biden is fundamentally uncomfortable for both religious and what he sees as political reasons, not saying the word abortion. Uh, the first time he said abortion at all was that statement uh, outside Air Force One on May 3rd. That is the first time in his entire administration any major official has said the word abortion. And that leaves activists to feel like they're fighting on their own. Because the president believes this GOP lie that talking about abortion is political suicide. That has not been true for decades. Like you said, 70% of the country and one third of Republicans support Roe being legal. The, the decisions happening right now on the right go so much farther than their own voters want that Democrats have an opportunity to build a whole new political coalition here of people who say these nuts have gone too far for me. But they have to actually find their voice and use the word abortion and not listen to this consultant messaging they're receiving that's telling them to say decision instead of choice and minor things like that while missing the bigger picture of these people are trying to take your rights away. That is the message that matters. And if we can't find our voice on that, I don't blame voters for being skeptical of Democrats. How do you feel about uh, Joe Biden's creation of the phrase ultra MAGA? Uh, he used it on Tuesday this week, uh, warned voters unhappy with soaring inflation and his stalled domestic agenda against turning power over to ultra MAGA Republicans in the midterm elections. 
as he uh, tried to cast the former president Donald Trump and his adherents as a political foil. Um, he said he could taste the country's dissatisfaction with Washington, particularly over rising prices, but he sought to channel the anger against the GOP. And he basically said, look, you know, don't be fooled by this ultra MAGA brigade because they want you to be angry. They want you to be furious about this and therefore they want you to vote for them. I mean, MAGA stands for Make America Great Again. Ultra MAGA is effectively saying, well, we're really going to make America great again. I mean, arguably, just with a from a vernacular perspective, he's shooting himself in the foot with this. And, and Jen Psaki had to do a little bit of damage limitation and said, well, this was the president's own language. Uh, in the same way that abort a child was the president's own language. So is this, are these kind of phrases, are they, are they any use? Do they serve the president well? So I'm going to upset the White House here, but this messaging is crazy. This messaging to me is opposite of what we should be doing. Uh, and I can tell you exactly how it happened is they likely got a poll in from a consultant saying that voters don't like the word MAGA, that MAGA maybe is slightly more unfavorable than favorable if you use it when talking about Republicans. So now the the logical choice is to overapply it in all of the messaging. So we have ultra MAGA, we have uh, Biden referring to Donald Trump as the great MAGA king. And I just don't see how this is effective to refer to these Republicans in a way that they already refer to themselves. Donald Trump will run with the idea that he's the great MAGA king. What more legitimizing statement could Joe Biden make about who leads this movement? I mean, that settles the Republican primary more than almost anything so far. And this idea that ultra MAGA is somehow bad, well, the MAGA movement right now is in the middle of a civil war in, in Ohio with J.D. Vance, in Pennsylvania with Dr. Oz, over who is the truest MAGA. So the idea that you could be ultra MAGA is, if anything, a great statement in your favor as a Republican. That's going to make more people donate to you. And it, it just shows you that this, this messaging that's done in a bubble from Washington that doesn't actually think about what these phrases mean in common use on social media, on TV, is going to make mistakes like this, and they will be costly. Going forward, I mean, we're seeing a lot of the Republican states, you know, Ron DeSantis, everybody's least favorite person, you know, now is coming out with increasingly extremist ways of communicating to his people that he is, you know, a, a kind of totalitarian, you know, he wants to, you know, banning everything and yet saying that we, you know, this is freedom, you know, you want to, they want to ban everything and that this kind of rhetoric that, you know, whether it be abortion or teaching about race in schools or LGBTQ plus rights, I mean, banning everything. And then there was a story about him. Was it wanting to teach uh, communism, teach about the perils of communism? This was a story from a few days ago. I mean, this they really are ramping up, aren't they? I mean, the guns are out now. There, there is nothing stopping these people. And, and this, as we said on the show last week, there's a kind of copycat behavior happening now amongst the other um, GOP states and, and other governors, yeah, some of I whom think, have uh, presidential ambitions, right? Oh, certainly. I think a lot of red states have learned from Texas and Florida. They've seen not only the political capital that those governors have been able to make, but also that the laws they're passing are, for now at least, standing up to Supreme Court muster on abortion, on tax credits. And, and we've seen Ron DeSantis really nail the line here, which is, 
I'm going to give more freedom to my conservative allies. You'll be able to ban what you want from schools. You'll be able to talk about religion in schools. And at the same time, I'm going to restrict a bunch of freedom from those people who shouldn't have it, mainly Democrats and minorities. So we saw that voters in Florida agreed to restore voting rights for felons. The governor said, nope, that's not going to happen. Those are the wrong kind of voters and made sure it didn't happen. He's done the same now with Disney. He said that if a business uh, talks in a way that displeases Ron DeSantis, you're going to lose your tax credits. You're going to lose uh, the benefits of doing business in Florida. So in some ways, Ron DeSantis is restructuring the Republican Party away from small government pro-business to large government pro-power. And anyone who gets in the way, business allies, the Chamber of Commerce, traditional Republican groups, will be stepped on because this is the new path of the party. So my final question to you is with all of this activity that is so public, you know, they're very good at press conferences. They're very good at getting it in the media. They're raising huge sums of money for, for their campaigns. What hope is there for the Democrats in, in uh, the midterms and in 2024 at this rate when they are up against a GOP that is ultimately singing from the same hymn sheet? So until a couple of weeks ago, I would have said that this was going to be a devastating November for Democrats. I still believe there's a strong chance Republicans take back the Senate. But this abortion decision that was leaked on May 2nd is groundbreaking not just in, in how far it shows Republicans have gone in actually getting rid of Roe versus Wade, but that this is an escalating fight, that it does not stop at abortion. We've seen states, red states so far, that have uh, talked about banning IUDs, banning birth control, banning the morning after pill, uh, putting women in prison for 20 years for having an abortion, as Kansas is proposing. Uh, even in states like Missouri and Alaska, Republicans saying that they're going to impeach and remove their entire Supreme Court until they get judges who are willing to give them the decisions they want on abortion. This kind of stuff terrifies voters. It's one reason why national Republicans haven't talked much about abortion, but they can't seem to shut up their allies in the states. And that, more than anything, is terrorizing and mobilizing voters who have never voted before. But Democrats have to get out and mobilize those voters. They will not come to the polls themselves. We need to make a proactive case about what is happening, and it needs to be confident. And that starts with Joe Biden talking about abortion. Okay. Thank you very much, Max. I appreciate what you've had to say and your expertise in this arena. Uh, that's Max Burns. I'm Anthony Davis. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning so you can listen whilst you make your morning coffee. And please leave an iTunes review. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. 
Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.